Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over chapter 11, which is We Shall Be As He Is, The Mormon Doctrine of Deification. And, you know, the rest of the volumes are leading up to this point where we talk about deification and Mormon thought. And, like we've gone over before, there's a few different schools of thought in exactly what deification means, and we'll talk about a few of those and specifically just kind of what we can surmise from Joseph Smith's body of revelations and statements and such. But the doctrine of deification in Mormonism is one of the most unique and distinguishing aspects of Mormonism, and it's one of the most controversial as well, because it's a, a stronger form of deification than any other Christian religion takes. We talked about some orthodox views last time that are similar, but in the end, all of the different views of deification came down to creation ex nihilo. And if there's creation ex nihilo, which all of you know the other Christians believe, then there's always going to be an ontological gap between us and God. Meaning we can never really be like him, because if we are created and he is uncreated, then we can't change the past and become uncreated. That is first a logical error and obviously just impossible. So anyway, to introduce the whole concept, you go over a couple of scriptures just to give us this idea, so I'll just read that real quick. You say, the scriptures repeatedly state that humans can reflect divinity. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4 expressly asserts that grace is multiplied in us according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that are necessary unto life and godliness, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature. And in John chapter 10 verses 34 through 36, it says, and in this, Jesus addressed the Jews and was quoting Psalm 82, which we talked about at the beginning of the book. I said, ye are gods. First John chapter 3, verse 2 says that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. As the earliest Christians pondered these texts and others, they quickly came to the conclusion that God's goal for us is to become divine in nature and to become gods. So before we jump into the deification in Mormon thought, in light of what we talked about last time, what is the launching point of this Mormon deification? And, I don't know, there seemed to be kind of a, an unfolding of Joseph Smith's thought on this subject, which built on itself, and I'm, you know, we're going to get into that more, but do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, strong notions of deification, the kind of robust deification I'm talking about, are already strongly hinted at, if not outright expressed, in both the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses, the parts that were translated in 1830. So, contrary to the popular view that Joseph Smith's views simply evolved over time, and that, you know, he went from a more or less orthodox view to a totally unorthodox view, the Book of Mormon already expresses, especially in Third Nephi, that humans fully reflect Christ's light and divinity, that we will be like him, and that we are the same order as God. That's especially undergirded by the fact that when Christ appears to the brother of Jared, he appears in bodily form and, in, and instructs Jared that he's made in his image and likeness, and that Christ is going to come in this image and likeness. And as a result, the full glory that Christ has, all humans may participate in. So we already have this trajectory in Mormon thought that remains solid, continuous, 
And of course, there's more knowledge that is given over time. But I would suggest that it's not merely the seeds, but a very strong and robust notion of divinity of human beings in the sense that is later expressed in the King Follett Discourse can already be teased out of the earliest scriptures. All right, so with that, we'll jump into the section which is just titled Deification in Mormon Tradition, and Jacob's going to lead us off there. So in the section, you first start by saying, it's well known that the fathers of the early church, especially in the Greek-speaking East, believed in the doctrine of theosis, or that the humans can become divine or share in the divine life. However, it is a mistake to argue that their belief in theosis is merely a mirror of the Mormon belief that humans become partakers of the divine nature. Because virtually every single one of the patristic theologians since Irenaeus believed in the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. They began from the fundamental assumption that God's mode of being is radically different from any created substance, including human substances. And so before we, we hop into the five views, just a brief overview. Is there any tradition really that matches up with the current Mormon tradition in that we can share in the divine nature? I would suggest that the earliest New Testament writings that humans could become of the full stature of Christ because Christ was the full stature of the Father, and therefore we participated in everything that the Father has and is, already has this kind of a doctrine without the notion of creation ex nihilo being present. And so I, I tend to view the New Testament as having a view of divinity and human divinity before the onset of creation ex nihilo at more or less the beginning of the second century of the common era. And so I don't want to assert that the robust deification that I define is unique to Mormonism and in the history of religion, because I don't believe that it is. And I think it's part of Joseph Smith's genius that he saw that. I also want to comment that we get an apologetic strain in Mormonism that wants to say, look, all these patristic fathers talked about humans becoming gods or becoming fully divine or becoming what Christ is, and, and Christ is what the Father is, and therefore they taught this Mormon doctrine, and I wanted to distinguish what the patristic fathers were saying. The patristics began essentially with Justin Martyr about 185 AD. Irenaeus follows closely after about 195 to 220 AD. And so we have this large group of patristic fathers who still have the view that, hum that humans share in the divine nature. But as we discussed last time, that what they give with one hand, they take away when they start talking about the doctrine of creation ex nihilo and God's uniqueness. And they start adopting a more or less absolutist Greek view of God, which would negate any possibility of humans really participating in or being anything like God. And so essentially, I guess you could go back to what Rakestraw was saying, and that's that, yeah, we can use it for shock value, but we don't really mean it. Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and move on to uh, you distinguishing between five different views of deification. The first one being absolute deification, which means that we can be identical to God. And by that, you are saying identical to the Father, not just the Godhead, correct? Well, to whatever deity is. I mean, in the mystical tradition, which adopts this view of absolute identification with God, you, you know, we didn't include the mystics like Meister Eckhart, Teresa of Avila, you know, we could name dozens, especially in, in the Catholic tradition. And what they're asserting is, I mean, to really, you can't define the deity because the, every, all human words are impotent. And even worse, human identity simply dissolves into divine identity. 
and it becomes totally ineffable. It means it can't even be expressed or explained. And that's understandable because what they're asserting is that essentially as individuals, they cease to exist and all that's left is God. And they can't express the mind of God to mere humans. And so that's essentially what they're asserting. But to assert that there could be any coherent idea of God, any coherent idea of a mystical, and there's no such thing as mystical experience. That's a misnomer. Because in order for there to be an experience, there has to be someone to do the experiencing. And human identity simply dissolves and disappears in these kinds of mystical experiences. But that's not what Mormonism teaches. It's not teaching this kind of identity with God. Uh, okay, the second view you bring up is robust deification. This is when we become the same kind of being as God. Yeah, and we'll spend the rest of the yeah. discussion essentially defining that, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. Suffice it to say, what it means is that we are the same nature species, and whatever defines the kind of thing and being that God is, that's the kind of thing and being we are. The third is moderate deification, which is when we become like God in the sense that Although there are ontological differences that cannot be bridged, these differences can nevertheless be blurred by sharing the divine energies. And what would be an example of a, of a group that adopts that type of a view? So this is the Orthodox view adopted by Greek-Russian Orthodox churches. And their theologians still speak in terms of the energies. The energies became prominent in these discussions later in Orthodox thought, but very definitely present. And what they mean by the energies is there is this life force that is the light and power of God that we participate in, and it transforms us into something more than a mere human being. And the best way to express it is probably to say that what we have now is mortal life that ends and is, it really is just temporary. And this kind of mortal life gets replaced with immortal life, but only God has immortal life. So we participate in the divine life because we continue to exist and the immortal life in us, the Zoe of God, in which we participate, transforms us into something that mortals are not. And so that's the expression of the moderate deification. I assert, moreover, that this view is just logically incoherent. It can't be that we can share in the energies of God, really. I mean, God may sustain us in life, but he's still sustaining us. And if he ceased to actively bring about our existence, we would just wink out of existence whereas his existence is impossible to not exist. And so the way in which we exist, even if we have eternal life, it's not divine life that we share in. It's a very different kind of, of life. It's, it's a contingent or dependent type of life, whereas God's life is not either contingent or dependent. And so even when they say we share in the energies of God and therefore participate in divine life, we're not really participating in the divine life because the divine life has a very different mode of being. And one of the main ontological differences there would be the creation ex nihilo, that God is not created, yet we were created out of nothing. Yeah, God is uncreated. Everything else is created and dependent on God's active creation in each moment to maintain it in existence. So that's the doctrine of sustenance. So number four you bring up is weak deification. This is where we, we become something remotely like God in an analogical sense, but there's a vast difference that can never be bridged. And is this a, a lot more Christianity, like the Catholic tradition, Protestant tradition? or I would say the, the Catholic tradition vacillates between moderate and weak deification, depending on who you're talking to. It's more the evangelicals and those who are really allergic to saying that we're anything like God who have this kind of weak deification view. Clearly, the liberal Protestants 
the Anglicans, the Universalists, their notion that we become anything like God, God is so different than we are. We're like God in the sense that God is good, and we can sometimes be good, something like that. So to the extent that we can be good, we can be something like God is. But again, the way that God is good is so vastly different from the way that we could possibly be good that the analogy is so weak that it's hardly worth bringing up in the first place. And that brings us to number five, which is adification, or we can't be anything like God at all. Well, and even an atheist could hold that view, because you can't be like something that doesn't exist. But I would say that this is inherent in the orthodox notion of the via negativa type of theology that they do, where you can't say anything positive about God, but only what he's not, which points out the tension in the theology in the first place, because one stream of their thought would suggest that we're nothing at all like God, and we can't be anything at all like God. He's so vastly different. And then they want to talk about sharing the divine nature and sharing the energies. And so it's a tough bridge to cross. They cross it, and at least in their view, I have no doubt that they don't see a problem there. But for me, that's a pretty tough bridge to cross. And so then you bring up the comparison of a molecule of water that you have before when you have the oxygen and the hydrogen being separate, but when they're put together in that certain relationship with each other, they're water. And then you also bring up deity just as a certain kind of relationship of a certain kind of beings. What I want to emphasize here is that what we are as mortal, alienated human beings is not the kind of being in life that we have when we enter into the life-giving energy of the divine life and unity through love. And being an alienated human being, the way that we live life as humans is so very different from the total unity in knowledge, power, light, and mind that the divine persons share that we're really something very different. And what I want to say is that the easiest way to put it is there's no such thing as individual exaltation. There's no such thing as one deity all by himself. The very notion of monotheism is what is impossible on this view. Monotheism being there's one God who's ontologically the only thing he is and that he has no relationship really with anything else, no real relationship, which is Thomism. That's the opposite of the view that I'm presenting here. As human beings, we are one kind of a thing, or as mortals, we're one kind of a thing. But when we enter into the divine unity with the divine persons, we are transformed by being in that relationship. There's another way to think of it, and that is there couldn't possibly be a being on this earth who's a human all by himself, and and he would exist in an ecologically supported life. The reason for that is that we depend on the plants for oxygen, and the plants depend on our nitrogen that we give to them for their lives. And so we have this symbiotic relationship. Deity is a symbiotic relationship where we need others to be the very thing that we are. We can't have the kind of life, the divine life, in which we participate in the divine nature all by ourselves. It is a familial concept or a concept of complete loving unity, not the concept of I get to fly off by myself to some part of the universe that God hasn't quite gotten to yet and start my own galaxy or, you know. It's the kind of notion that Mormons adopt when they press Brigham Young's theology and say, you know, there are all of these deities above us and we become deities in our own right but God is the God with whom we have to do. There's a God above that and a God above that. 
maybe if we knew the God above that, we'd worship him instead. But instead, this is the only God we have to do with and the only one we can know. Deity consists in complete independence. And so I become a deity by going to some part of the universe that God hasn't quite gotten around to, to organize it and create my own order. And I become the God of that part of the universe. That's a view that I'm rejecting. I don't believe it is what Joseph Smith taught. I don't believe that, well, I, I'm asserting affirmatively that it's, it's contra-scriptural and that it is the very opposite of what the Mormon scriptures and revelations actually teach. In Mormonism, deity is a communal aspect. It is a communal nature. And we can only participate in the divine nature and be divine to the extent that we are in this communal loving unity that defines Zion. And I believe and have taught that's why Joseph Smith was instituting Zion. It was to teach us the kind of being so that we could become fully divine. And everything that Joseph Smith did and taught was to bring us into this type of a unity. So when people start saying this is Mormonism, I believe they're, they're missing not only the entire history of Mormon thought, they're missing the very essence of Mormon thought and teaching instead a counterfeit that is exactly the opposite of what is actually taught. All right. Can I, and can I interrupt there? I don't think Brigham Young technically held that view, or at least at some point he didn't hold that view, though you go off and fly off by yourself either, at least the way he put it. So I found this quote on one of the New Cool Thing boards, and it says, In becoming gods, all interests must be in one eternity. Brigham Young did not teach of countless gods doing their own thing in countless universes, each out of their own concerns. According to Brigham, there will be no such separate kingdoms or personal power to yourself, by yourself, and for yourself, regardless of every other creature. Uh, here's a quote from Brigham Young. Uh, this is from the Journal of Discourses 4, page 28. And he says, But the truth is, you are not going to have a separate kingdom. I am not going to have a separate kingdom. It is not our prerogative to have it on this earth, but if you have a kingdom and a dominion here, meaning... He's kind of talking about your kingdom on earth and then your kingdom in heaven and comparing them. It must be concentrated in the head. If we are ever prepared for an eternal exaltation, we must be concentrated in the head of the eternal Godhead. Why? Because everything else is opposed to that kingdom, and the heir of that kingdom will keep up the warfare with that opposing power until death is destroyed. And him that hath the power of it, not annihilated, but sent back to native element, he will never cease to contend with the opposite power, with that power that contends against the heirs of the earth, uh, well, blah, blah, blah. The important part here is, he says, your interest must be concentrated in the head on the earth, and all of our interest must center in the Godhead in eternity. And there is no durable interest in any other channel. Anyway, so Brigham Young seemed to hold a this kind of same view that you're not going to be a god by yourself, although I do admit that some of his teachings definitely seem to be construed more towards that, or at least maybe later people seem to bend them more that way. I think if you focus on what he means by the head God, he means the God with whom we have to do. What he's saying is you can't get above that God, so if you try to do it without that God, you're going nowhere. I don't believe that the quotation supports the kind of strong statement that's asserted beforehand. In other words, Brigham Young's thought was precisely, and, and I could give you dozens of quotations and connections, especially with the Adam-God views, that each deity has his own separate dominion, and that when we become gods, we set up our own separate dominion, the same as all other gods have done. 
he may have held views in tension. I'm open to that possibility. In fact, I think it's probably inevitable that he did so. What I'm not open to is the notion that somehow he didn't believe that there was an eternity of gods. He taught it consistently, openly, and oh, yeah, he definitely did. <laughs> throughout his entire life. That was his understanding as, of what Joseph Smith taught. And the problem is, is that when he talks about the head, he's saying, well, this is the God who's over us, and you can't do anything without that God. Don't even try, and you can't leave that God behind. Whenever you gain your kingdom, you're knocking him up to a, another kingdom. And so our glory is interrelated. To that extent, I think that what Brigham Young is saying is the, the community includes this kind of local community of gods, and that's all that we can ever aspire to. Perhaps, but saying the quote is he also didn't necessarily think you could do it by yourself. You, you still need whatever god, even if it's the Adam god that he's referring to. I think he saw it more of related to the idea of the great chain of being without an end, though, meaning... Like you said, if this god will bring you up to a certain level, and then he'll move up to another level, and then you'll bring up other gods to that same level, and so on, and eternity both ways. Anyway, that's a common Mormon view. Yeah, I think it is a common Mormon view, and I think it's a common Mormon view precisely because Brigham Young taught it, and that's how he understood Joseph Smith. And people have read the King Follett discourse and the Sermon in the Grove through Brigham Young's eyes as a result, and his views obviously, at least in the Utah church, more or less prevailed even over Orson Pratt's theories and so forth. What I want to emphasize is, is, is to this extent, you're right. I mean, Brigham Young believed that the com he just limited the community. And the community is limited by the God with whom we have to do and the head God. Notice he adopts Joseph Smith's terms um, about the head God. He's referring back, I think, to the King Philip discourse and such usage. And so to have Brigham Young talk about, you know, we can't do it on our own, that's right. It's a communal act even for Brigham Young. It's just that the community is, is local. Uh, I could give you quotations where he does talk about going out to a place in the universe where there's unorganized matter and, and organizing it freshly as a new, how do I say this, a new family of gods. So to the extent that the intro suggested otherwise, I don't think it's an accurate reading of, of Brigham Young. And it's possible Brigham Young held different views both simultaneously and also that his views evolved over time. In fact, it's almost certain that his views evolved over time. Okay, well, I just wanted to mention that. Anyway, you can move on with the robust deification definitions. I know you kind of already said this, but it sums it up quite nicely. In the book, you say, I am not asserting that humans become constituent parts of God and are thus divine. Rather, I argue that when we enter into a loving relation of indwelling unity with the Father, the properties of deity emerge from that unity and interpenetrate our being in such a way as to transform us into something that is a different kind from an isolated or alienated human being. Yeah, and I, I think it sums it up well. It's because the analogy to water is misleading because hydrogen and oxygen are constituent parts of water. And I don't mean to assert that the analogy is exact. We need to you know, modify the analogy to come up with a, a notion where hydrogen and oxygen would have to be turned into something different than they are in order to produce something like water. But that's not the case in the molecular union. It is the case in the union that we have that brings forth the emergent deity. Okay. Here's a random question, and it's probably could be more speculation than anything else. But since we're in an isolated or alienated state here because of the, you know, not only are we separated from Heavenly Father, but because of the choices that we make, what do you think it was like 
before we came down and, and became humans? Were we still isolated and alienated because at some point we had chosen something other than love? To the extent that we were individuals and had our own thoughts and personalities, which I believe we did in the pre-existence, I believe it's what Joseph Smith taught, and I believe it's what the LDS scriptures teach in their full development, a certain amount of alienation would have been essential. The fact that we've got this story about a third of the hosts of heaven disagreeing with the plan of God, which would tend to indicate that we could disagree and have our own ideas separate and apart from each other, and that we were not part of a single divine unity. I take that as more of a mythical story that teaches us a truth about becoming human, but it teaches us also something about the nature of our existence, and that is that we were not just one undefined mass. We weren't just intelligence. We had an individuality, but more importantly, we could disagree with God and reject God, and I think that's essential to the Mormon view of the preexistence as well. All right. Well, then let's go back to number two, like you were saying, robust deification. And the reason we're going to flesh this out is because I imagine this is what matches up the best with Mormon doctrine. You say robust deification is not an accurate description of deification in the Mormon tradition if it is construed to mean the first definition, humans as individuals become the same kind of being as God. However, it is accurate if it means the second definition that you postulate. Humans perfected in the love of Christ become the same kind of being as God to the extent that they are in a relationship of a fullness of indwelling unity with the Father through Christ. So instead of deity being an individual notion, it then becomes a relational notion. So now we're going to talk further about this fullness of relationship, especially the part where we're being perfected in the love of Christ, how that brings us there. So you... Now go through some of the scriptures from Joseph Smith, as well as some quotes from the lectures on faith. So the first one is from Doctrine and Covenants 88, where you say, Deification is accomplished when a person's body is given life by being filled with the glory, light, and power of God. A revelation given to Joseph Smith, which is what we're talking about here, this was on December 27th, 1832, summarizes the entire doctrine of deification. It says, And if your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light and there shall be no darkness in you, and that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God. So what do you take away from that? So you get filled with light, and then your minds become single to God, I guess? Yeah, and it goes on to say, essentially, that we possess everything that God possesses, and we have the same kind of life that God does, and it finishes, and the Father and I are one, and I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and inasmuch as ye have received me, ye are in me, and I in you. And this is the important part, which it didn't include. That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light, and continueth in God, receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter until the perfect day. The perfect day is when we see as God sees and know as God knows because we are fully unified with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And so what they know, we know. What they choose to do, we choose to do. What they do, we do. And our purposes are their purposes because we're completely unified. We've talked about what that means in some prior podcasts. But the bottom line is that what this revelation is teaching is that it's because we participate as one being in God what that means is, is that the power of God, the mind of God, the knowledge of God, the intelligence of God that is somehow inherent in the light of God. Think of it this way. The light of the sun comes and warms your body, and then the photons of light actually pass through and enter into your body. 
and the light of God, it's like what it does with leaves. The light of God actually interacts with the chemical makeup of the leaves and they create energy, the very energy of life through photosynthesis from the light. And so it's like when the divine light hits us, we have this photosynthesis type of a process that we have to process the divine light to transform our human nature into divine nature. And to the extent that we are completely transformed, we are completely everything that God is because he's making us over in his image by receiving this light into our very being. DNC 88 says, They who are a celestial spirit shall receive the same body which was the natural body, even you shall receive your bodies, and your glory shall be that glory by which your bodies are quickened. So it's talking about the resurrection, but he's also kind of talking about, you know, we also believe in past the resurrection, then the kind of resurrection you get or how you resurrect it is dependent on what you're quickened with, I guess. So the amount of light you receive. Yeah, quickening is, is the moment when life enters. And it used to be that the legal term for the moment the life expressed itself, like when the baby cries and takes a breath, that's called quickening. And so what it means is that life, they believed a soul entered into the human body essentially at that time. So when it says we're going to be quickened by the celestial glory, what it means is the degree of light that we've been willing to receive will actually be the type of divine life that we participate in and the extent to which we participate in the divine life. And some will participate more fully in the divine life than others. And so some will have a measure of light that's comparable to the stars. Some will have a measure of light that's comparable to the moon. Some will have a measure of light comparable to the sun. But those who participate fully in the light have what the scriptures consistently call a fullness. So there's a fullness, and it's participating fully in the divine life. But what it's saying is that, and this simply solidifies the very notion that the divine glory that we participate in is a life force. It gives us life, literally. And to the extent that we participate in the light, it defines the level and degree of divine life in which we participate. But it is literally an energy of life that is given to us by the light of God. That's what it's talking about. Okay. So yeah, that was the next emphasis of what this idea of a fullness that we receive. And then Joseph Smith mentions this fullness in his revelations a few times. And he gets it from Ephesians and from Colossians, which talks of a fullness. It's a technical term in Greek, pleroma, which is the Greek term. And I think it's important to read those scriptures. One is Ephesians three seventeen through 19, which says, That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye may be rooted and grounded in love, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, till we come unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so what Ephesians is teaching here is that we'll participate fully in what Christ is by participating in this fullness. And what it's referring to is this divine glory that actuates and gives life to us. Colossians 1 and 19 says, For it pleaseth the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And 2 and 9 through 10 says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. It's essentially saying, and the, the term for Godhead here is a Greek term, theotes. Theotes is the term for a fullness of divinity. Okay, what it means is a completion. It means Godhead. It means whatever the divine nature is, he's participating fully in that. And we will have that same fullness. We will be complete in him. So a completion is the logical fulfillment of having a fullness, which is what Colossians is saying that we'll have in Christ. And we'll have the fullness of the stature of Christ. We'll be everything that he is. It's a doctrine of Christification. 
And of course, John 1 and 17 says, and of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. What it's referring to here, and, and remember, this is from the prologue of John that talks about the light that before the world was. We are, by participating in the light of God that gives us life, we then have a fullness that actuates us from grace to grace because the light is a sheer grace. It's a gift to us, just like the light of the sun is a gift to us. We don't pay anything for it, and it creates all life on the earth. In the same way, the light of God is given to us, and it creates all divine life. What Joseph Smith is doing is reflecting on these scriptures, and in his revelations, the concept of a fullness has this very close relationship to the doctrine of Christification and therefore the doctrine of deification. And the exchange formula again is present because we will participate fully in what Christ is. Christ participates fully in what the Father is. Therefore, we also participate fully in what the Father is through Christ. And so that's the kind of reasoning underlying the revelations and what Joseph Smith is teaching about a fullness. It means a fullness of divine glory. All right, and then I want to move into a few quotes here. So, and then you, you talk about that fullness a little bit, but then you say, you emphasize that the fifth lecture on faith, it makes it plain that humans can become a part of the Godhead, and it also kind of talks about that same exchange formula. So, I guess I'll just read it real quick. This is from, again, the fifth lecture on faith. And he being the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and having overcome, received a fullness of the glory of the Father, possessing the same mind with the Father, which mind is the Holy Spirit. Again, this is probably an earlier view of the Holy Ghost. It's not an earlier view. The Holy Spirit is precisely the medium of delivering the light of God. This is not an earlier view. It's a fully mature view and one that should never have been rejected because it's a full expression of the doctrine of deification. Okay, sorry. Are you distinguishing Holy Spirit from Holy Ghost then? No. The Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit are the same. The mission of the Holy Ghost is to be the one who is the medium that expresses this fullness to us. And so the Holy Ghost participates in mediating this fullness to us. That's what the Gospel of John teaches. It's what DNC 76 teaches. It's what DNC 132 teaches as a practical matter. By saying that the Holy Spirit is, is the combined mind, what it means essentially is that the divine mind emerges from the fact that they are in unity and the Spirit participates in the unity of the Father and the Son, thereby sharing the same mind. And so the Holy Spirit becomes essentially a mediator of the presence of the fullness of the divine intelligence and mind. Most people have never read the fifth lecture on faith in light of the teaching of deification. But it has to be read in that light. The seventh lecture on faith is a full expression of the Mormon doctrine of deification. And it's not something that was superseded by later views. Understood correctly, it is a very complete and accurate logical description of the doctrine of deification, even as it existed in Nauvoo. Okay, yeah, we'll get there in just a second. So let me continue with the quote real quick. So... They possess the same mind with the Father, which mind is the Holy Spirit, that bears record of the Father and the Son, and these three are one, or in other words, these three constitute the great matchless governing and supreme power over all things, by whom all things were created and made that were created and made, and these three constitute the Godhead and are one, the Father and the Son possessing the same mind, the same wisdom, glory, power, and fullness, filling all in all. The Son being filled with the fullness of the mind, glory, and power, or, in other words, the spirit, glory, and power of the Father, possessing all knowledge and glory and the same kingdom, sitting at the right hand of power, 
in the express image and likeness of the Father, mediator for man, being filled with the fullness of the mind of the Father, or, in other words, the Spirit of the Father, which Spirit is shed forth upon all who believe on his name and keep his commandments. And all those who keep his commandments shall grow from grace to grace, and become heirs of the heavenly kingdom, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, possessing the same mind, being transformed into the same image or likeness, even the express image of him who fills all in all, being filled with the fullness of his glory, and become one in him, even as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Sheer genius, sheer expressive ability and fullness of expression of the doctrine of deification. Now, studies show that it's very likely that the only lecture on faith that Joseph Smith authored is the fifth lecture on faith. And what he's doing, he he is basically taking and summarizing the teachings of Mosiah 14 and 15 and 16 and DNC 93. Essentially, those parts of the Book of Mormon and his revelations are quoted repeatedly and phrases are lifted and taken and put in, in the fifth lecture. And Joseph Smith is teaching there in this fifth lecture what he understood was being taught in Mosiah, you know, essentially the speech of Abinadi and in DNC 93. The view that somehow the fifth lecture on faith represents some kind of evolution beyond where the earliest scriptures are is just simple nonsense. People haven't really looked at the relationship. Joseph Smith is telling us how all of this interrelates. And it is clearly, I mean, look at what it's saying. Immediately after saying that the Father possesses the same mind with the Son, which mind is the Holy Spirit, then talks about how they are three and the three are one. And they constitute the one great matchless governing power. What he's there is expressing how the unity gives rise to emergent deity and sharing of a fullness of knowledge. And he's bringing the Holy Spirit in to show how the Holy Spirit participates. And when the three become one, how they give rise to the emergent omniscient understanding shared between them and the divine power shared between them. So what I've been teaching, you know, is, is the Mormon view in all of the prior chapters that we've talked about. And now what I'm saying is essentially already being expressed in Lecture 5. It's not been superseded. It's a magnificent description of the doctrine of deification in Mormon thought, not superseded by the King Follett Discourse. And it is a very fine summary of the Mormon scriptural teachings about deification that I assert Joseph Smith never tried to overcome, never passed beyond, and remained his teaching throughout his entire life. All right, then, to follow that up, I don't know how you, we want to do this, but I, you say that all of the LDS views of atonement, justification, sanctification, Christology, the Godhead, salvation, and exaltation are ultimately entailed in our definition of robust deification, and this is all brought together in section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is a revelation. So there's a chart that kind of gives a side-by-side comparison of the Son of God, or Christ, and the sons of God, and their both of their trajectories to become a deity and become like God. So I'll put that chart in the notes, but I mean, you can quote it if you want, but can you just kind of talk about the main points of DNC 93 and how they compare the Son of God to the sons of God? Well, let's just summarize it and, and, you know, let's motivate people to go read what we put up. It's important to see the comparison and read it. But all it's really saying is that everything that Christ is, we are, and that we become everything that Christ is by traversing the same trail that he did. 
and that Christ has a fullness of the glory of the Father, and therefore we have a fullness of glory of the Father. That's all in DNC 93. I would also urge people to go back and read the fifth lecture on faith to see how it appropriates DNC 93, where all of this is taught, and how it magnificently puts together those teachings, because Joseph Smith is giving a fully scriptural answer here. The notion that he's somehow defining a different view of the Godhead it fails to understand that he's not even addressing that. He's addressing the notion of deification and how it is that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost share in a fullness of divinity so that we can share in a fullness of divinity. Great. Okay. And then piggybacking off of the ideas in the fifth lecture on faith, you say, what has often been missed by Mormon scholars is that the King Follett Discourse, which Joseph Smith delivered on April 7th, 1844, is actually an expansion on the seventh lecture on faith. That discourse, again, presents the same argument that beings must be the same kind of being as God to be saved. The lectures on faith assert that the attributes of God's character, which are identified in Lecture 3, are precisely those attributes in which we must share to be saved as God is. That is exactly the starting point for Joseph Smith and the King Follett discourse. To comprehend ourselves and what our capacities are, we must comprehend God. In fact, the quote says, if men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves. And you go on to say, to comprehend ourselves through comprehending God's character, Joseph Smith places the argument in the context of the eternal human spirit that is uncreated just as God is uncreated. And the whole apex of the King Follett Discourse consists in the assertion there that humans follow the same path as Christ to become heirs and partake of the same glory as Christ does with the Father. It is a stunning assertion that everything that Christ shares with the Father, the saints also share with Christ in the Father. So again, like you said, referring back to the fifth lecture ideas. Right. So the seventh lecture is a very complete discussion of deification and about this type of divine unity. But what it does is it defines that in order to have the kind of and participate in the kind of perfections that God does, we would have to have each of his attributes, that is, because God has maximal knowledge, the way I define it, we would have to have that same kind of knowledge to be the kind of saved being that God is. And what Joseph Smith and the Lectures on Faith are arguing is that God is a saved being because of the kind of being that he is. And in order for us to be saved, we have to be the same kind of being that God is. Now, the key here is, is that the term saved is used in a different technical way. By being saved, the Lectures on Faith would have been better to have used the word exalted or deified because they really don't mean the moment of justification. They mean the fullness of the process of sanctification. So the use of the word saved, but what they're saying is, and this is how Joseph Smith framed it in the lectures on faith, in order to be beyond the power of every being that seeks our destruction, that's what being saved is, is we're beyond that power of destruction. But the only way to be that is to be exactly what God is, because only that kind of being is beyond every power of destruction. And so Joseph Smith is arguing, and this is why the King Follett Discourse, you know, is the completion of the lectures on faith, and essentially, is that in order to be what God is, we have to be ontologically the same kind of being that God is, and we have to participate in and walk in the same path, the same way that Christ did. And so what he's doing is basically reflecting on the lectures on faith, especially the seventh lecture, 
and telling us how we become saved beings in that sense, that we are beyond the power of everything that would seek our destruction. It doesn't mean saved in the sense that we are justified in, in the moment of accepting Christ and then begin the process of sanctification. That's a Protestant use of the term. When that term is used in the lectures on faith, it means something quite different. And so we would now use the term exalted or deified. And so I think if we clear up that kind of misunderstanding, we begin to see both the lectures on faith and the King Follett discourse in a different light. Okay. And then you also talk about a different revelation or a different section of Doctrine and Covenants. And you say, the view of deification most often implicitly accepted as definitive in the Mormon tradition is the revelation on eternal marriage, which was received July 12, 1843. This revelation redefines deification, as you've been saying, as exaltation, and gives rise to the popular view that deification is merely the power to beget offspring in an eternal family unit. I guess there's two questions there. So, is there a difference between deification and exaltation? And I think you have, at least from what I understand in the past, you have kind of differentiated the two. And what's this about begetting spirit children? I thought that that was not a notion Joseph Smith taught, yet here it seems to be one. I've said that's the way that DNC 132 is popularly read and how it's popularly misunderstood. So let's not take that as a statement of what I think DNC 132 teaches. Exaltation is more than deification. Exaltation means to be in the celestial kingdom. And to be in the celestial kingdom, there are three different gradients even in the celestial kingdom, according to DNC 130. And a person achieves the possibility for that kind of exaltation through baptism. But only one type of exaltation, that is the fullness of deification, entails eternal marriage. There are people who aren't eternally married and who are baptized and the ways have achieved a celestial glory. Straightforward reading of the revelations would suggest that at least initially children who die before the age of accountability have that kind of glory. They don't have to be married in order to have that kind of glory. So exaltation means participating in the celestial glory. There are three different levels of celestial glory. It is to be exalted to be in one of those three kingdoms in the celestial kingdom. And so to be exact, exaltation doesn't equal deification. Deification equals what DNC 132 defines as having the eternal sealing power and therefore to be able to exercise the very power of God to seal all things eternally. And what I'm doing is referring to what I think is a misunderstanding of the doctrine of deification in Mormon thought that simply equates it with exaltation and equates exaltation with being sealed and having an eternal family. You know, I'm correcting that view. I think it's too facile and, and not really reflecting carefully what the Revelation actually states. Okay, and then what's your interpretation of the part where it says, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever and ever? What seeds are they referring to there? Is this more like an adoption type idea? or How, how can we? The family unit will continue forever. And so we will have our children with us forever and ever. I don't believe that it's referring to a heavenly mother having a resurrected body who nevertheless gives birth to spirits. That view wasn't on the horizon of Joseph Smith. He didn't have a view of a heavenly mother. He never talked about a heavenly mother that I think can be documented in any really solid way. I think it's a mistake to attribute to him these views. It's anachronistic to do so. And to read DNC 132 in that way is certainly anachronistic. It gets read that way because of the later developments in Mormon thought. And so what the Revelation is actually teaching is about the sealing power 
and to have this sealing power to be sealed up by this power as a family unit is precisely what's being referred to. You're saying for the seeds means the ones already begotten, basically children. Right. It means continuing with your offspring forever. The seeds are the children or the offspring you continue with forever. It's a strange euphemism, let's just admit it. Possibly. But you can't fault people for reading seed was as the scriptural term that it means everywhere else for continuing to have some sort of offspring. That's what seed generally means, right? Not necessarily. I could say that my children are my seed. That's not a problem. Obviously, it comes from the comparison between sperm and seeds, and then sperm somehow germinating new seeds to bloom into something that they weren't before. Even biologically, it's a bad analogy. So, you know, but the talk of seeds here doesn't mean, and it doesn't even mean in the Bible. I mean, the Bible talks about the seed as offspring all of the time. It doesn't mean simply a power to beget. Yeah. And I I think, like you've emphasized, Joseph Smith thought more of things as like a, a big chain of adoption or, you know, joining in that way, not necessarily begetting anything because, yeah, like you said, we, at least as far as we can tell, he fully believed that intelligences or spirits synonymously have always existed as opposed to the other Mormon view where you were somehow individuated from the ethereal oneness of intelligence, you know. Yeah, I mean, the the notion of a Heavenly Mother being the source of new spirits is clearly an innovation, and it's an innovation essentially driven by B.H. Roberts. I'm not aware of anybody who's teaching that that basically, you know, we have a tripartite pre-existence, and the pre-existence consists of intelligences who are then begun through spiritual birth, literal spiritual birth by a Heavenly Mother into a spirit body. That's clearly a later view that, that B.H. Roberts put together. It's not expressed that way before that time, and it didn't involve a Heavenly Mother before that time. Now, obviously, others, in beginning in 1845, taught about a Heavenly Mother, but I think that bringing the Heavenly Mother into this, I've very carefully read everything that Joseph Smith said, and there's not even a hint. We have a very complete record of his Nauvoo statements and, and sermons. There's not even a hint of a Heavenly Mother in his, in his sermons. Okay. And next, you go over what you call the essential core or you say the essential core of any adequate description of deification in the Mormon tradition includes at least these five things. So now we, I want to go over those individually. First one is the sons and daughters of the Most High God in, in the council of the gods were in his presence prior to this mortal life. However, God desired to share a period with us that is possible to achieve only if we possess the fullness of his likeness and image. The sons of the Most High God were sentenced to become mortal so that they could learn to defend the poor and deal justly with those given to their care. You're saying that's what Psalm 82 teaches. So I guess I have a question there. You could acknowledge that Psalm 82 is not necessarily teaching the same thing that Mormons teach about the Council of Gods. I think they did view these gods as something separate from humanity and that they were banished to become mortal rather than, I have a lovely plan for all of my children to become mortal. But you're saying it's maybe the seeds of that idea are, are reflected there somewhat? No, when you put it back into the mythological context of the ancient Near East, it's teaching precisely that the gods have been placed over the nations. They are the sons of God, begotten by God in some sense, to be placed as members of a council who become the gods of the various city-states in the ancient Near East. 
but those were city-states that already existed, populated with lesser human creatures. At least that's the way I think they no, understood it. No, there were, there were 70 of them. You can look at the list of nations in, in Genesis. And so these gods were placed over them. Yahweh was placed over Israel. And these gods, according to Psalm 82, there came a point where God recognized that the governance which he had given to the earth of the members of the council by the sons of God they had failed completely. They were not dealing justly and not recognizing their role that they should be playing. And so essentially, he causes them to become mortal like Adam. And in becoming mortal like Adam, the reason they're becoming mortal like Adam is because they haven't dealt justly. They're becoming mortal precisely so that they can experience what it is to be treated in this unjust and unfair way and learn from their experience. So I disagree with that. I think in the full mythological context of the ancient Near East, the idea is precisely that the gods aren't simply being cast out. The gods are, in fact, being demoted because they failed to properly care for those over whom they've been set with the implicit idea that the gods have something to learn by becoming mortal. So um, that's how I read Psalm 82. Okay, well, how are you relating that to the Mormon view, which is there was a council and we were there before any humans were ever created, and then we came down. Where is this banishing coming into play? Like, they're obviously not the same thing as all I'm saying. They're two very well, different stories. No, but they're related. First of all, don't take it as history. Take it as a mythological expression of a truth. Right, so that's what I'm saying. You can. It's a, it's a shadow that sort of is a faint reflection of maybe something lost, but it's definitely not the same story. We, I don't even suggest that it's been lost. I think that what we're dealing with is a story that we ourselves were divine beings. We had a lot to learn about compassion and treating people justly and learning to love them. And we desired to do that. And it was the only way to be fully just in, in everything that the God El is and that Yahweh had been taught to be. And so we have chosen to become mortal. I think that Psalm 82 is the beginning. I mean, Psalm 82 is even quoted in, in section 132. It's quoted in section 76. Almost every time Mormon scriptures start talking about deification they are being exalted or being gods, they quote Psalm 82. And the reflection that is precisely in the context of the pre-earth life when we made a decision to move forward. Not everybody was required to move forward. They weren't coerced to do so, but they were allowed to move forward if they made the choice to learn from experience to become as God is. Not everybody will do that, And but as I read our scriptures, especially DNC 130, every experience we have will be for our good. That's fine. I guess I'm just not getting how this mythological story about gods and already existent humans is the same as the Mormon view of it. It just seems a little too different to me. We're the sons and daughters of God. We were in the council of gods, and God has chosen to give us the opportunity to learn to be what he is through our experience. How's that? No, I get that. I, that's the Mormon view, but this... The view in Psalm 82 is definitely of a council of gods that are banished to become humans, which is already a thing because the, the reason they were banished is because they weren't treating the humans good. So this would separates a class of gods and a class of humans, and since they didn't, they didn't govern the humans right, like I don't think you're saying that in the council of gods in the Mormon view, there was already some sort of earth and that there was only 70 of us uh, and they were governing badly they already i mean you know see they're very different as all i'm getting at. that's why i said it's a mythological expression not a historical expression well, let's move on here so second one is through the fall we have chosen to forego our immortal glory to learn from the things that we experience as mortals 
just as Adam and Eve did as, a, or as symbolic representatives of all humankind. Like Adam and Eve, we have all freely chosen to leave God's presence to learn to appreciate good by experiencing evil, to empower our growth to be as God is, and to share a fullness of relationship. It was necessary for us to leave our immortal life to experience mortal life and opposition as a means of experiencing further growth into the divine likeness. Okay, so, uh, and I know we'll talk about this probably when we go over Fire on the Horizon, but you're saying Adam and Eve were only symbolic here? Are you saying they were real and they also were symbolic in all of humankind? I'm using in the same way that Alma 41 and 42 use Adam and Eve. They interchange between mankind and Adam, where mankind is replacing Adam constantly in the discussion. So Adam stands for mankind. It's using Adam as a symbolic representative of all humankind, just as, as I state. And so what I'm doing is reflecting here on Alma 41 and 42 that teaches that the choice was made. We could have stayed with God, but we chose not to stay with God. But there were consequences, and those consequences were fully explained to us. In Alma 41, the consequence is that we're going to die. But the good news is, is that we're not going to die right away. God has given us a time of probation in which we can decide whether we want to be with God or not. And that's our choice. And we've been made free to make that choice through repentance. And the bottom line is, is that because, you know, there's a pre-existence in which we make the decision whether we want to take on the task of learning from our experience to grow further and for some to grow all the way to grow as to be as God is. It's a choice that's been given to us. And whether or not we achieve that depends on our choices. That's what Alma 41 and 42 are, are teaching in, in the context of the atonement, of course. Okay, and then the third one, Christ, as God, became mortal to restore the image and likeness that we all voluntarily relinquished through the fall. So I, that's pretty self-explanatory there. But it ties into this number four. It says, those who freely accept Christ enter into a relationship of indwelling communion of shared life. And if they continue, will progress to achieve their ultimate potential as sons and daughters of God, become joint heirs with Christ of all that the Father has and is and are therefore appropriately exalted gods and so yeah it looks like you're tying as you know we have talked about already that story of christ becoming human so that we could become god just the what you call the exchange formula there again expressed yeah, yeah it's the exchange formula I'm placing it in the context of the choice to become mortal because the book of mormon does and and because the later revelations do but it's also important to place it in the context of the life of Christ that makes it possible for us. The Mormon expression of deification, when we put it this way, becomes you know we, it's something that we read from our scriptures and not something that we just invent because it's a neat theological idea. Right, then the fifth. As gods, our pre-mortal glory is restored to us and further added upon, and we become once again members of the heavenly council of gods presided over by the Most High God. So, are you saying that we were in some sort of relationship with... Well, I guess, let me ask this. So, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. It's pretty clear, and I, since I'm a Mormon, I know what you're talking about here. But I guess what is not expressed here, as far as your idea goes, is... I, I, maybe you can't articulate this because it's impossible, but like, at what point is being in the presence of God now becoming something that's a deification presence as opposed to what we had in our pre-mortal life like what 
how do you measure something in a relationship? Like, what's the point of exaltation? Is it something that God chooses to initiate, or is it something that just happens because one day we reach that level and suddenly we're in that re relationship? Some switch is flipped. God has already initiated it. He's given a fullness of light for us to choose into. We participate into the light to the extent that we freely choose to accept the light that's granted to us as a grace. We are exalted to the extent that we choose to be exalted because of the consequences of our choices. And the consequences of our choices are these. All of the commandments teach us how to love one another. And when we learn to love in the way that God loves, with the same kind of pure, unifying, exalting love that God has, then we will participate fully in the divine light and the divine power and the divine mind, and therefore we will be fully exalted. We will be deified. So the purpose of this life, according to Mormon thought, is to learn how to be as God is by learning how to love each other the way that God loves us. In fact, that's exactly what the commandment is. Love each other as I've loved you. And all of the other commandments are merely appendages to that one commandment. They're just ways of teaching us how to love one another. And so the purpose of human life is to learn how to love one another with a pure divine love. In order to do that, we have to learn from our experiences because we haven't yet learned to do this or we would be in that relationship already. And importantly, it's a process of repentance. We screw up over and over again. I mean, just think of all of the arguments you've had with the people in your life and the people that you say you love the most. It's a process of learning to love, of growing, maturing. Some will continue to learn and grow and become loving and more loving and begin to reflect more, more perfectly the divine life and love. To the extent that it can be accomplished in this life, some people have actually accomplished it. I, I suspect most won't. But the bottom line is, is the very purpose of life is to give us this opportunity to love as God loves. And by learning to love as God loves, we do everything that we've talked about. We move from our pre-existence state and the reason I pulled Psalm 82 back in is that it was precisely the failure of the gods and the sons of God in the council of gods, their failure to properly love those over whom they had been given stewardship that required them to become human. <laughs> That's why they became human. That's why we became human. We chose to undertake the experiences so that we could learn through opposition what we have to in order to love. Now, as we discussed earlier, in order to love in this way, we have to experience opposition. We have to have the possibility of not love, but not merely not the possibility of not love. We're actually challenged by people who are hard to love. We can call them enemies, people that we would naturally despise. Um, some people call those children and others call them parents. But there are also people outside the family we might not like so much. When we learn to forgive as God forgives and learn to love as God loves, then we will achieve deification. And because we will have, when we have this kind of love, we will naturally enter into the unity of thought, mind, and power that defines the Godhead. When we love as they love, they will be one in us and we will be one in them and we will share fully in the divine life. So the doctrine of deification comes down to this love one another as Jesus taught us that he loved us because he loves us in the same way that the Father loves us. And if we return that love, then we too will have a fullness of divine glory because it is divine to love in that way. Okay. And I guess, I mean, that's good and that's, you know, it's all beautiful. I like that. I'm just, I guess I'm just asking, 
how do you, I mean, again, I know you don't know, and it doesn't really express this, but like in your view or your opinion, is that, I'm just trying to picture this process, is it like something so subtle that you just wouldn't notice it? Or, because like, you know, relationships aren't just, I mean, I guess there's like marriage where you're like, hey, now we're starting this type of relationship, but if it's more like just the love of that relationship, it's sort of this gradual thing that develops, whereas... I don't know, is like, is it just one day you're like, oh, today, suddenly I'm, I love enough to be in this, in the perfect divine relationship. Yesterday I was slightly not there and suddenly today I am and I can feel all the omnipotent power coming in and all, all the omniscience coming in or I don't know, I'm just trying to wrap my hand around what your opinion on that is. Well, go and read DNC 50, which expresses it really, really well. We grow in the light from grace to grace until the perfect date, when we have a fullness and we participate as one in the Father and the Son. Read DNC 50 and 20, 27 through 29 and 43, which I think is a really good summary. It's, in fact, it's kind of the beginning of Joseph Smith's theology of growth in the light, grace for grace. And it's this gradual grace for grace process. I mean, we may not notice it, and the people around us may not notice it right away either. But over time, they're going to see that the angry young man or the, the guy who was too aggressive over time learns how to love. Now, some people may say it's just a reduction in testosterone. I'm open to that possibility. But the fact is, with the life of experience and finding out what really matters most, over time, we re hopefully at least, we refine ourselves. The people who are growing in the light of Christ refine themselves on a daily basis. And it takes a full lifetime to refine ourselves on this daily basis. And so we learn gradually. I mean, what you're learning about your relationships, you know, you have children and they challenge you and they reflect everything back to you that you are, both for good and for evil. And you learn from them. But it takes, you know, being a parent's not an easy thing to do. And you don't raise a child in a day. And even when you've fully raised your child, you're not done. We continue to be parents and in family relationships forever because these relationships have so much to teach us about love. There's no relationship that could be a greater engine or a greater pedagogical um, teacher than having children and being in a marital relationship and learning how to love one another more, more fully. I can tell you, after 39 years of being married to my wife and after having had children and grandchildren, what I've learned about life and love is vastly different from what I could have possibly understood as a young man before I was married or even before I had children. These kinds of experiences transform us. And usually it's the kind of love of a parent where we love so far beyond ourselves. And we, and we know that the love that a parent has for a child is so transcendent, so beyond anything that, you know, you can't even explain it or express it to a person who hasn't had children. And that's why the greatest tragedy is when that love fails to mature and blossom the way that it, it most normally does when a person abuses a child or, or murders their girlfriend's children. It just is so heart-wrenching that it's just unthinkable. That's usually not what happens. Usually over time we learn to love one another in, in ways that are incredibly far transcending and far beyond what we could possibly do. But it takes a lifetime. And so I'm, I'm sure you said this. I said it of my own father. You know, I said it to you when you were kids, you know, the, the, the man who's your grandfather is not the guy who raised me. And that's because he had learned something. And I hope you're saying that to your children. I hope you're saying, you know, the father that I had is not the grandfather you have. 
he's so much more loving and gentle with you than he ever was with me that I can hardly believe it's the same person. That's what a lifetime of learning ought to do to us. It ought, it ought to turn us into a different person as grandparents than we were as parents, and certainly different than when we were kids. A lifetime of experience is something that ought to teach us. I suspect that God has all kinds of plans A, B, and C when, when people die early, and Mormonism gives us some of those plans to show us how God is thinking and saying, look, the fact that you didn't get it done in this life isn't the end. There's, there's more afterward." And so, yeah, it's a gradual grace for grace from one degree of light to another. That's how the scriptures say it, over a lifetime of experiences. Well, let me just give an analogy and see what you think of this. So, well, I'll give your analogy and then well, this analogy first. So, you know, if you want to be a master painter, there's no shortcuts. You have to gradually practice. You have to get better at it. And you work on yourself. And that's this idea where, you know, maybe you even have a mentor that guides you along, but they can't do the work for you. You have to do that work. And you can't be a master painter without actually being a master painter, if you know what I mean. So that's one view where you progress individually, sort of, but, you know, you with others to this point. But back to your analogy of an emergent property, it's not really gradual. When hydrogen and oxygen come together, it's not like a gradual relationship where they slowly get there. It's There's a moment of fusion, if you will, where they become this one element. And I'm just wondering, because you've expressed that analogy so many times, and because you're view of deification relies so heavily on this emergent property of relationship. So I'm saying it seems like there would have to be some sort of moment where it's noticeable that you're now something different. I'm just saying, is there that moment or is it something so gradual that that it's kind of more like the painter where like you're always improving and you're never going to be your best, but there's a point where you're, you're the master painter, if you will. Yeah, think of it this way. Imagine you could become even more fully water than what water is. We become more fully human than we were previously. What emerges, emerges from from one degree to another. The way that the analogy is that it grows from one degree of light to another, and it grows brighter and brighter until the perfect day. And so the light grows over time. The, the problem with the analogy to a master painter is you always get people like Mozart who were doing full symphonies at the age of four. They just come with it. <laughs> so I suppose that some people just come with it as well. But the analogy to water can be misleading. The only thing that I'm trying to show by the analogy to water is that when things are in relationship, they can give rise to something that is much more than the individual component parts. That's all I'm trying to show there. Okay. Well, I just mean, is it like when you're developing this relationship, are you able to manifest godly attributes in degrees, or is it something that is like a an all or nothing type thing when your relationship? Because you're saying you're not God until you're in this emergent relationship, and then suddenly there's a floodgate or something of of, of this relationship, and now you have all the knowledge of everybody else in this relationship. So that I don't see. I'm not sure if that can be gradual. The notion is is that we grow until we have a fullness of light and participate in a fullness in unity. And when this fullness occurs, then we've achieved deity and a fullness of deity. We are everything that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is, even in terms of our glory. There's no difference in terms of glory and in terms of what we participate in. And so there is this growing until, as DNC 50 says, until the perfect day. But we're in this process. Now, 
there's something misleading even about talking about the perfect day because even God is growing and self-surpassing in each moment. Deity and being in a fullness of deity is a dynamic growing reality. It's not static. And so it's like life. Life is a dynamic growing reality. The mere fact that you're alive doesn't mean you're not growing. And so it's like that. We have divine life, but being, being a living human being doesn't mean that I'm not growing as a human being. So keep in mind that even though I'm fully human in every respect, I've got more of my humanity to realize. Being fully divine is being fully human, and so even my full humanity isn't expressed yet, even though by definition I am everything that a human being is. But I'm growing in that capacity as a human being. So that's the better analogy. Okay, that works. Jacob, what are your thoughts on any of these five points or just this idea of deification in general? Do you have any problems with any of this or thoughts? No, you brought up some good points. It's kind of hard to conceptualize how exactly it happens, but... That's because it's not done through conceptualization. Right, and and that's more or less what you've been discussing is it's not like a, a moment that it happens or, I don't know, it's a process that has to be experienced rather than... Yeah, I mean, it's experiential knowledge, and that's why it is so important that we have experiences and have the opportunity to experience. But there's always a Mozart. I mean, Mozart would have been a better musician, would have been a better composer than I have the capacity to be, even if I practice, at age four. And so, you know, he just came with it. He's a genius. There's nothing I can do about that. In terms of his spirit, he was already a celestial being and could have died before the age of eight and been fully exalted. Right, and we have those, or there's even those that just appear to transcend the rest of us, Mother Teresa types, you know, it's just like they get it. Yeah, they just get it, and and they reflect love so fully, we just, we're in awe of them. And so we're all at different, you know, we're all at different levels of the, or different gradients of this process. And it's not like it's always upward and onward. Sometimes we, we fall backward. I mean, there have been really spiritually great men who were on a path to become like Christ who completely, you know, they leap from the path head first into a concrete barrier. That's why God has given us repentance. It's a constant process of repentance because we're constantly screwing up. But hopefully in, in repentance, we've learned something. Repentance means that we learn not to do what we've been doing before <laughs> to, so that we can avoid it, right? So through repentance, if we truly repent, we're not going to go back and do the same thing again because we learned something. And so it's just an ongoing process of growth as a human being into a divine being. And as a divine being, continuing to grow the way that human beings grow, even though we're fully human. I'm becoming more fully human every day. And, I mean, the great thing is, is you guys have no idea how much I learned from you and being your father. Well, maybe you do. You've got children of your own now, and you know how your children, you know, stretch you and press you. And also give you opportunities to learn to love beyond yourself and transcend the capacities to love that you had before. Only by being a parent. You can't explain that to a person. If a person chooses not to have children, you can't say, look, do you know what you're missing in terms of the experiential school of life and learning to love? Because they'll never get it. You can't explain it to them. But once you become a parent, it's like, oh, yeah, no, I get it. I know exactly what you're talking about. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.